From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. We've really hit on something that, that resonates well with, with companies and sort of differentiating between design for additive manufacturing and modifying for added manufacturing. So D, DFAM and MFAM. And I think where that really, you know, really resonates well is that DFAM is anything you're doing where you're adding value with additive manufacturing. And so, you know, you talk about topology optimization and part consolidation, all these, all these things are adding value and helping you make a better business case. The flip side of that coin is then MFAM. And that's all about anything you do to avoid costs with additive manufacturing. And so there are things about, you know, build planning and support structures and post-processing and inspection. You know, anything you're doing to modify your design to avoid all those extra costs, you know, that falls in this MFAM bucket. And so this, it, it, it's become this nice sort of yin and yang of, am I adding value or am I avoiding costs? And both of those things are, are worthy and need attention. And it's easy to then start saying, you know, easily categorizing all the different, you know, all the different ways you can do and use and apply additive is like, okay, is that adding value or is avoiding cost? And based on that, you know, how do we move forward? That was Tim Simpson. Tim is the Paul Morrow Professor of Engineering, Design, and Manufacturing at Penn State University. His research focuses on additive manufacturing, engineering design and optimization, and technology-based entrepreneurship and innovation. He is also part of the Barnes Global Advisors team. We talk today about the ever-evolving world of 3D printing, education, and training, and Tim also shares his predictions for the ongoing growth of the AM industry. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Um, why don't we get started with a little bit of kind of your history in the additive manufacturing space? Where did you get started? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, great, great to be here. Uh, lots of other cool guests that you've been having on this. So honored to be uh, to be part of that. Um, so I guess my additive journey goes back to uh, you know almost 25 years ago, grad school now. Um, I was at, at Georgia Tech doing product design development uh, research and uh, they were putting in, Dave Rosen and the team was putting in this cool new you know, 3D printing lab, the rapid prototyping uh, uh, manufacturing lab there. And um, you know, that was way back with sterile lithography and uh, uh, FDM at the time. And, um, so saw saw the technology actually helped. Uh, I did a lot of a design of experiments work. So I actually helped plan a bunch of experiments on sort of optimizing process parameter settings. I mean, it's funny. It's the same thing, you know, we're doing now for metal that we were doing, you know, 25 plus years ago for plastics. Um, so you know, I've been I've been uh, after I graduated, came to Penn State, and you know, I'm, a, I'm a, again product design guy. So we've always sort of lectured on, you know, talk students about how to use 3D printing uh, as part of prototyping, as part of product design and development and the impact there. And then it was really the last, almost 10 years ago now, um, I, was, I was putting together actually a map of campus, all the 3D printers that were scattered around. We had expanded, uh, we had more students that could use our, you know, the printers that we had in, in the learning factory at the time. And, started meeting other groups on campus and, and created a, a network of, of 3D printers and digital fabrication technologies and stumbled into uh, Applied Research Lab. And they had an Optimec lens system in there. I was like, holy cow, we can, we can 3D print metal? It was like, 
you know, my world just exploded at the time. Like uh, this, you know, whole, you know, game changer right there. Um, and, you know, from there, that was about the time, right? The, you know, this next wave of interest in metal audio manufacturing, everything took off. And we were fortunate uh, with Rich Martikanitz, who was the, the lead on, on, uh, on that group. Um, he and I had submitted to, to DARPA's open manufacturing program and hence we launched uh, Sim3D. And then uh, about a month later, I think we were part of America Makes, part of you know, the nine or 10 universities there. And, uh, and then it was just sort of hang on for the ride, right? I mean, it just, uh, it just has exploded since then. So it's been, been fun. And so I still do you know, product design development, but I really had to spend the last, you know, 10 years now understanding the details of the processes, the materials, you know, standards, testing, qualification, all of this to then help me, you know, research in all those areas to then help inform, you know, what do I need to teach, you know, designers and future engineers about how best to use this. So that's uh, uh, hopefully a fairly short summary of Let's see the past 25 years. Yes. <laughs> and so kind of drilling down a, a little bit on the education front, kind of what's your thesis or what's you slash the university's thesis on educating engineers or people coming up interested in additive? Do you view it as a kind of separate technology or within kind of broader product design, mechanical engineering, materials engineering? Kind of where's, are there lines being drawn? Are they, they blurred? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think certainly it, it, it's funny. You see that I, I do work, you know, I'm teaching sort of the next generation engineers and, and students here. We work a lot with companies, uh, you know, doing research in Sim3D. And of course I'm working um, this year in particular as I'm on sabbatical working a lot with uh, John Barnes and the team at the Barnes Global Advisors. So we're actually doing, you know, workshops at companies. Okay, granted they're remote and virtual, but but nonetheless, I'm sort of seeing that that full spectrum there. And um, you know, at, at the undergraduate level or sort of in college, I think you're using 3D printing and additive as sort of a good, good hook or an on-ramp to, you know, what's this technology, um, you know, broadening their, their minds about what can be made, why, and how to design differently for, you know, for this capability. But end of the day, you know, additive is one of many processes that are out there and how do you how do you pick and choose the best? Uh, and what does that mean from, you know, performance, time, cost, schedule, those, those sorts of things. Um, I guess the downside is that these, these undergrads and the students, they get so enamored with 3D printing that they think everything should be 3D printed, right? And so we're now having to fight that tendency and they've got such easy access to 3D printing. I mean, heck, a lot of uh, students are coming and already have 3D printers from, from high school. You know, so now they're printing stuff in their dorm room overnight for their project the next day. And, and so it's everything should be 3D printed, which, of course, is not the case. Uh, and then you see the flip side of that in industry, right, as well. Uh, you know, what are the risk evolve? What is the, you know, how far is the technology really? What's the, you know, sort of the readiness of this? And it's, um, you know, much more apprehensive and or cautious, obviously so than what we have to have to teach. And so it, it's funny sort of sitting between those sort of the opposite sides of a, of a seesaw, if you will, um, where one, one group is completely gung-ho uh, and the other group uh, is certainly much more reserved. And um, 
you know, it just makes it makes for interesting, right? When these undergrads go and work in these companies, <laughs> how does how does their excitement for the technology run run up against you know sort of the the current culture within within an organization? So, um, so I think as I as I said, we're trying to how do we best prepare students to recognize this is one of many new technologies uh, or many manufacturing technologies, and then if and when you have the opportunity, how do you you know, design for additive to really exploit what you can, you know, now do and make um, since you're fabricating parts, you know, layer by layer by layer. So you probably put in several cohorts of undergrads, even graduate students in the industry now, and they're at many large companies uh, scattered throughout many companies doing additive work. And what's the kind of how now that like people are out in the field kind of doing work, like are you having to update your teaching models or kind of what's what's really important to teach? What was something I really thought was important, but less emphasis here? Or is there something that has kind of evolved over the last certainly couple of years that, um, that you've seen? Yeah, great, great question. I think, um, you know, I'd say certainly feedback from students uh, on sort of, well, what are the challenges they're running into in a company, in industry, right? Um, you know, a lot of that ends up being they, they had such free free access to 3D printers, for instance, that now they, they, they can't touch the one in the company or, you know, have to go through a certain, uh, uh, you know, through a certain process or, or find the right group to print something. Um, you know, I think the other thing, obviously, is they, they're so you know, one of the good thing about students is they don't know what they can't do, right? And so they go and have all these crazy ideas. And so now it's the, uh, <laughs> the reality of the real world, right? Sometimes smacks them a bit hard in the face there. Um, I think probably what's been more impactful on my teaching is, you know, the work that I've been doing with companies, uh, again, with, with John Barnes and the team is really, that's been seeing what companies are really struggling with, the challenges that they're running into in terms of adoption, uh, software, workflow, costs. I think that is now I'm trying to flavor, bring more of that back into the classroom. And so we're using my own real world experiences, um, you know, which doesn't, doesn't always go well either, right? You gotta, you gotta be careful. You know, we can dream up anything we want in our, in our academia, academia and ivory towers, but um, I like to be very grounded in industry there. And so I think it's been very useful to be out there to doing workshops, training companies, writing about it. And then I'm using that to feed back into, into the engineering and, and 3D printing courses that I teach. And so there's a much bigger push and emphasis on, you know, on the cost modeling and understanding the cost side of it and understanding and talking about risk, uh, these sorts of things, which, you know, we should be talking about, but it wasn't, um, this wasn't as, as, as tacit, it wasn't as real. You couldn't get your teeth around it as much as you can now with additive. And I think that's the other thing too, standards, right? They used to be, okay, and some, some people may say they're still pretty boring, but they used to be like, well, why are we talking about standards, right? Why is this relevant? But it's like with additive, there's so many cases where we don't have the standards that now it becomes a good conversation on, What's the importance of standards and why do we have standards? And okay, without the standard, what do you do, right? So it's creating all of these sort of what ifs uh, and great discussions that previously we couldn't, couldn't really have in engineering. 
We just sort of went with the steady state and okay, I teach, I teach thermo and I teach statics and I teach dynamics and this and that, but being in product design and manufacturing with additive, every, everything is so in flux right now. It's, it's both fun and exciting and uh, scary and challenging at the same time. And I mentioned within you know, the Penn State ecosystem too, you're drawing with the center being kind of additive focus. I'm sure you draw from all sorts of departments, all sorts of case studies, medical, maybe bio, maybe materials, like that, all that comes together. Have you seen kind of like academics that may not, added may not be their first thing, but like they're now considering it kind of having these different conversations about, oh, like there's some uh, different approaches that we may not have considered without this technology. Absolutely, yeah. And so we've, I've, I've worked hard. I was fortunate. Um, Penn State, uh, we, we take education very seriously here. Uh, we've got a great, um, called the Teaching and Learning with Technology Group. So they're, they're funded by Penn State at the university level. And so they, they get sort of funding to sort of try out new technologies that then might, you know, how does this impact our teaching? And so uh, I think it was four or five years ago, I was, they were just starting to think about 3D printing. So I was the 3D printing fellow for Penn State. And so part of what I did was go around and talk to uh, intentionally to your point, okay, let's go talk to the architects. Let's go talk to, uh, you know, the ceramicists. Let's go talk to the material scientists. Let's go talk to, to all, you know, to the medical groups and see where, where are they with additive and 3D printing? You know, what's coming? What do they have? What would they like to do? And, and from that, we built a, a sort of a community of 3D printing experts, you know, faculty, instructors, staff uh, as well that, um, you know, just, just sort of everybody sort of mixes and mingles nightly, nicely. And I think that's one of, you know, the, the benefits of a big university. Uh, of course, the challenge as well is, is we have depth. You just got to find it, uh, much like in a big company, right? And so in many ways, we mimic, you know, I look at like, like a Boeing, for instance, right? That's, they're in Philadelphia, they're in St. Louis, they're in Seattle, they're all over the place, right? As you have these just different levels of expertise around different technologies, We've got the same thing in Penn State, right? You've got technology around ceramic 3D printing here, uh, concrete printing there, bio printing here. And so how do you get those people talking to another? Because it's you, additive, you can't, you can't do alone. Um, as a mechanical engineer, right? I can only design uh, so much. I got to know about the properties and process and that and, and vice versa. And so how do you create uh, opportunities to learn from each other across disciplines? Um, and share and exchange ideas. So we've been doing now with, with COVID, we've been doing a virtual uh, colloquium uh, once a month where we get together and do different topics. Uh, and then we look for um, things like uh, common areas of interest, like, okay, sensing, we're gonna do one, our next one next month is on sensing. And so like you were saying, folks that you know, have great depth and expertise in say ultrasound, uh, may not have applied it to added manufacturing, but now let's create a, create a discussion uh, around, hey, what, where, and how could we use ultrasound for, you know, inspection in situ, pre, post, you know, let's, let's look for new uses there. And so we're sort of matrixing, you know, who's, who's the technology experts at the process design materials, and then what are the, the application domains, aero, auto, heat exchangers, you know, gas turbines, medical, um, and I, I sort of joke, 
you know, I could, I can, I can keep track. Metals is my, my primary interest. Polymers is sort of secondary as for bioprinting, uh, concrete and ceramics. Uh, you know, I, I can't keep up with it all, but, but I know who to go to if I have any questions. And so that's the way I've, you know, sort of tackled that, that problem. And from a student perspective, do you, when they go to Penn State, do they get a degree in 3D printing or is it like, is it kind of stratified depending, like, is it a minor within mechanical engineering? How's it work at graduate level? Can you speak to a little bit to that? Yeah, no, great, great point. Um, so that we do not have at the undergraduate level, we're, we're sort of infusing 3D printing, even, even as early as freshman year. Uh, one of the things that I did uh, helped launch was our Maker Commons. Uh, so we've got within the main library on campus, uh, 32 3D printers that, that now any Penn State student can print for free. And so we've now integrated those into different courses, freshman year, sophomore, you know, junior level, uh, the mechanical design course, you know, there's, there's 3D printing projects in there so they can use it. And of course, senior, you know, capstone design. So so we sort of created a backbone uh, with 3D printing across multiple departments. Um, at the graduate level though, we are fortunate. We did launch a brand new added manufacturing and design uh, degree. So it's a master's, uh, it's both online and resident. So if you uh, are a resident student doing research, you can get a, a master of science uh, online. If you're working at a company you're taking one or two classes remotely uh, come to campus for a hands-on lab and do a project. And then, um, you know, you get a master of engineering there. So, so we are seeing that um, en enrollment has, uh, see, we've got over 120 people now from 60 different companies enrolled in that, which is great. And that to your point is taught by five different departments. And so our core courses, we've got a, you know, a, a class in industrial engineering that talks processes. We've got a class in material science that's, you know, AM materials. We've got a class, we have an engineering design program. So they teach design for AM and, and et cetera. And then you have electives here and there. So we worked with um, uh, the law and business to create a legal implications of additive course, right? That, that talks about this. So, so we're able to bring that in and uh, you can enroll directly in that program uh, and, and go through and get a degree, or you can take it as a minor. So if you are getting a mechanical engineering PhD or master's, you take, you know, three or four courses in additive, and then you also get a minor as you go. So you usually, you've got a lot more flexibility at the graduate level, uh, to bring in new courses and, and do things like that undergrad. You're still, still constrained a little bit by, you know, ABAT, our accreditation bureau and, and those sorts of things. So we've, We've done our best to exploit that at the graduate level as, as much as we can. And more high level question. So in the sure. industry, as you, you see it today, do you think the acceleration of machines adoption by companies, both large and small, is education keeping up with kind of is the workforce keeping up with the industry or is. Ooh, yeah. Good, good question. Um, I, you know, in some, in some ways it is ahead, in some ways it lags, right? I think you go into a lot of the companies and it's, you know, you certainly have, have experts that are in there, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one, two, maybe a handful of individuals, right? And the challenge is there now, how does it, how does it pervade? How does it become, you know, sort of ubiquitous throughout? And, um, and a lot of times when we go into companies and do that is thinking, okay, well, what's, 
what's sort of the, you know, what does everybody need to be aware of versus if you're, you know, sort of the intermediate level versus if you're the additive expert. Um, and, and that's, that's been challenging the flip side from teaching students, right. As well with additive is I may be talking about this software or this process or this particular technology that, oops, that was acquired last night or oops, that's now, uh, you know, completely, uh, is no longer relevant because all of a sudden company X just came out with, with this technology. I mean, you look at the, you know, sort of the laser wars that are going on right now with, uh, with SLM solutions and Velo 3d and everybody, right. I've got this many, that many sort of like, okay, well, we were, you know, I was still lecturing on single laser, you know, I'm not even at, at dual lasers and quad lasers. It just scales though, right? It's easy, right? It just scales. Right? <laughs> uh, if, only, if only it were that easy, but, but so it's, that's yeah. challenging and it, and it's, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, just the, the, the pace at which technology is changing these days, right? I mean, you look at, look at artificial intelligence, right? Look at, at mobility, uh, and uh, 5G, these sorts of things, trying the usual model of, hey, let's create a 15-week class to teach X, right? Well, in 15 weeks, you know, X is going to change drastically. So how do we get, you know, shorter snippets, tidbits that are, that are updated more in real time, taught just in time, you know, those sorts of things is, is, yeah, there's some there's some you know potentially very disruptive forces out there I think when it comes to our our traditional long-standing educational models and I imagine too like the breadth or like the the span of types of companies is really all over the board you have it like depending on the size like a Boeing training a Boeing <laughs> looks a lot different than Training Oof. a company that has one, maybe two metals machines and yep, like yep. engineers, as well as industry, right? Like it's not necessarily oh, yeah. transferable. And so you have this, like this huge, uh, um, huge set of, or huge problem set, but. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so the diversity of, of companies, of sizes, of industries, uh, you know, mapped against the diversity of, of technologies uh, material sources, you know, et cetera. That's a, that's a pretty messy, many to many mapping there. And so trying to figure out, well, what, what do we teach? And perhaps that's why people, you know, I actually was just uh, did some work and, and went and looked at sort of what are the most common of the courses and, and programs that have popped up, uh, you know, Penn State, Carnegie Mellon, Ohio State, Maryland, among others, uh, Auburn as well. Um, actually quite a bit going on in the UK and Europe in, in addition to that, but you sort of look at it and well, what's, you know, what, what would you think is the most, you know, most commonly taught course uh, across all of those? I'm going to, I'm going to pose that one back to you, Mike. <laughs> I'd say like business for 3d printing or some, like some element. Oh, that's actually that. very, that's actually, there's only a couple of those. That's actually okay. a rarity, surprisingly. Okay. No, it's, it's the, it's the processes is the big uh, one, right? Because because that's, you know, okay, here's our seven categories. We've standardized it. And, yeah. and I can, you know, if I have a 15 week course then I can spend two weeks on every process and boom, I'm good. All right. Process, you know, this Line tag, number one on lasers here. every intro. Exactly. <laughs> These are <laughs> right, seven, ASTM defines seven different There processes. you go. <laughs> there's, there are, there's well, you know, well over a hundred of those such courses out there. Right. But that only gets you so far. You, what you need, if, what companies need and one and what the students need and one is exactly what you said. It is the, 
the business considerations, right? Let's start from there and work backwards. But the challenge there is that the business considerations for, you know, a large aerospace company like a Boeing or Lockheed versus, you know, a Ford or a GM in the automotive space versus, uh, you know, a, a, you know, Striker or, um, uh, you know, tangible solutions in the medical space, for instance, right? The, the quantities, the size, the regulatory, um, the, the challenges that makes those business courses, the legal courses, the, you know, these other aspects, just it, it's harder to standardize that information because there's just so much that's sort of still in flux right now. I imagine too, like in a lot of the cases that you're working with, like people are probably tied into a, a system, like a, a machine. Like in my experience, like that's usually always like the, the catalyst for everything. When someone wants to spend a million, two million bucks on machines, like so they can go show it off and bring their bosses in and show yeah. up. But then like you have all this back of the, okay, who's going to run it? What's the business case? What's the, like sometimes yeah. people do that, but in most cases, like it's, a little bit of fluff <laughs> to, to, to show like someone else used it well um yeah but it's, uh, yeah it's extremely yeah and i think that's it, it's extremely challenging to make a business case for additive where you're just doing you know based on it, your existing parts that you've designed so if all you're trying to do is is sort of oh we're gonna we're gonna use additive you know i'm gonna i'm gonna am this part instead of machine it right and it's gonna be a direct substitution or sort of a like, like for like, you know, it's extremely hard to make a business case on that alone right now. And so you have to, um, you know, in some ways you have to take a risk that, hey, the, you know, the parts that we're going to be designing when we have additive are going to be uh, cost advantageous, but, you know, I can't guarantee that now in my business case. And so it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing. Um, and, and yes, you're absolutely right. Many times when you're, you know, going to a company or talking to or doing a project with a company, it's like, yeah, we bought this powder bed fusion system. And <laughs> how, how do I, how do I train the, the, the operator? How do I take advantage of it? How do I make money with it? Right. Um, you, you, you sort of get, get stuck or locked into something there and then you're trying to dig your way out. So, um, you know, it's you, you see, unfortunately, we still see far too many of those situations uh, these days. And kind of, you, you touched on a little bit of the design for additive. And I know a lot of the, the articles, courses that you teach focus on that. I mean, how do you see that as, I mean, it's a, it's a huge factor in, in getting the business model, but from a, both the teaching and implementing kind of DFAM in organizations, what have you seen? Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, it, it, that's sort of the, for me as a guy, you know, product design, mechanical engineering background, that's now also, you know, doing think and 3D printing, DFAM design for additives sort of right, you know, that, that, that maximizes the intersection in my Venn diagram uh, on those. And so, you know, I've been, I've been back and forth quite a bit on this um, in terms of, you know, one of the nice things about teaching is you're constantly trying to find you know, better ways to, to, to streamline what you're teaching and how you're teaching it, right? So you can, you're getting feedback from people, both students and, you know, industry practitioners, you can, well, when we were in person, you could, you know, you could read the room and see, you know, the, you know uh oh, that's like, that's not a good look. This is, <laughs> I'm losing them uh, versus sort of clarifying. And so, you know, I think in, in the past three or four sets of workshops, I've been doing, um, 
again with the with the Barnes Global Advisors here. I think we've really we've really hit on something that, that resonates well with with companies and sort of differentiating between design for additive manufacturing and modifying for added manufacturing. So D, DFAM and MFAM. And I think where that really, you know, really resonates well is that DFAM is anything you're doing where you're adding value with additive manufacturing. And so, you know, you talk about topology optimization and part consolidation, all these, all these things are adding value and helping you make a better business case. The flip side of that coin is an MFAM. And that's all about anything you do to avoid costs with additive manufacturing. And so there are things about, you know, build planning and, and support structures and post-processing and inspection, you know, anything you're doing to modify your design to avoid all those extra costs, you know, that falls in this MFAM bucket. And so this, it, it, it's become this nice sort of yin and yang of, am I adding value or am I avoiding cost? And both of those things are, are worthy and need attention. And it's easy to then start saying, you know, easily categorizing all the different, you know, all the different ways you can do and use and apply additive is like, okay, is that in value or is it avoiding cost? And based on that, you know, how do we move forward? And then you can say, all right, if I'm just trying to, you know, replicate this existing part, right? Well, do I have the freedom to change that part? Or, uh, you know, can I do MFAM and try and try and minimize these extra costs it's going to create versus clean sheet, new design, boom, I can go, I can go all in on DFAM and, and maximize the value because it's a brand new part, right? And I don't have these constraints uh, that I'm limited to. So, um, so it's been, you know, sort of round and round and round teaching it many times. And it seems like that was really a, an aha light bulb that went off just in the last couple of months here with folks. And so we're now trying to you know, flesh that out a little bit more and, and sort of, again, this sort of yin and yang on, on these two topics seems to really be resonating with folks. Do you find yourself teaching it, mostly designers, kind of people driving the CAD, like the actual designs, or is it a combination of you have to engage some of the, depending on the size of the organization, of course, like the operators, maybe some of the inspection post-processing folks involved there and, and kind of at various stages of the workflow or like, is everyone in, engaged in that conversation or does it really drive from the designer who has to just really understand everything and be the ninja that knows like, yeah. this is the, <laughs> the, the how Ooh, this is going to run and I can't do I like it, the, the, the additive ninja, right? right. There we go. We need to... <laughs> What does what does he or she look like and has to do to you know know everything? Yeah, no, I it, it varies quite a bit, and and I've you know I've gone from um, you know doing workshops where we're just drilling and deep diving into you know topology optimization and lattices and this and that to higher level um, you know we did one last um, uh, a couple of them actually last November and December with program managers and project managers, and so there. Yeah, you sort of need to be aware of what you can do, you know, of DFAM and the processes, but you're really more concerned about what's it do to, you know, my, my schedule, my cost, and, you know, performance and quality, right? So the uh, sort of the, the three legs of the, the program manager's uh, stool there. And so depending on that audience and others, it's always interesting when you do a mixed audience of you know, engineers, designers, manufacturing, you know, process uh, engineers, throw in a few, uh, you know, QA, QC or testing folks. And, oh man, the, 
<laughs> you know, they come to they almost come to fist blows in some cases there like when you get put them all in a room um i think one of my my the more fun uh one of the 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 training sessions that i enjoyed most was actually uh with a bunch of chief engineers um uh, at, a, at a medical company that was they wanted to know what what what's everything that could go wrong with additive so that they could be smart enough to ask the questions of their engineers and designers. And so that was, you know, usually we're teaching about how to do everything right, but that was actually fun putting, putting together a list of everything went wrong. Of course, by the end of that, they were like, well, why the hell would we ever want to use, use additive <laughs> given everything you just told us? It was like, okay, well, you know, okay, let's go, you know, let's, here, here's how to overcome those things, right? So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a wide, wide range of needs and interests there. Um, I think the best, most productive ones to your point is rather than, yes, we can create the additive ninjas that, you know, know it all, do it all, see it all. But I think more so, how do you uh, get a, a team of three or four, maybe five individuals that, that have different disciplines and empower them to sort of work cohesively to consider additive from the design perspective, from the manufacturing perspective, from the materials perspective, from the you know quality assurance or mission assurance or, or testing side, and the more you can get you know you don't want to be the lone person on the island. Uh, the more you can have sort of a small team to work with and and look at additive from all these different angles. I think the more successful you're going to be at at adopting it and and advancing it within your company. Sure. And I, and I see that now as like kind of getting that initial design business case, right? Whether you're modifying or kind of designing specifically for the process. And then kind of as companies move into kind of productionizing that, I mean, there's still, there's some case studies out there that's growing. Um, yep. From a teaching perspective, do you think there's a different skill set kind of once you like the design may mm. not be as important? I mean, like that next layer if you're going to manufacturing or kind of productionizing scaling it is it a different skill set that people need if they're not as focused maybe on and they don't have as much control on the design hmm. yeah good good question um i think i think what's certainly from a uh, let me say with respect to designers i think you know as you start to do more you know, topology optimization, generative design, sort of all these cool tools that are out there. Your role as a designer is actually changing, right? You're not necessarily creating, sculpting, shaping the CAD model. You're, you know, you're defining the problem that then, you know, the generative algorithm or the topology optimization algorithm is going to use to explore all these different ge design geometries, right? And so now as a designer, you're more working in collaboration with a computer with an algorithm to you know explore more options just because hey i'm so used to thinking about how to design parts for casting and machining that i tend to go i go straight to x y and z and extrude sweep revolve and you know that's that's how i do it um i think certainly what what happens then with the other groups uh, m p uh qa qc testing right they need the, the awareness level versus the expertise level shifts, right? And so they may need, they may not need as much depth in how the processes work or how the laser or powder interacts and melts and what leads to a defect. They just need to sort of get a bet, you know, a, a higher level sense. But 
but then they really need to understand, okay, well, what is the impact on, you know, of heat treatment on, you know, microstructure and properties because end of the day, I'm the one who has to sign off on this, that it's not going to break. Right. Or that it's going to work properly. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's still evolving. What is the, you know, sort of what, what are, you know, I tend to think of it in three levels, right. Sort of what's, what's the general awareness level, sort of the intermediate level and the expert level. And those three levels vary uh, depending on your role in the organization as an engineer, as uh, you know, MP. Um, you know, quality assurance testing and those sorts of things. And it, and it shifts, um, shifts by role and, and, and process there. I'm sure that's even kind of expanding out as well as like, how do different organizations, like if, if I'm, Boeing's probably a bad example, but if I'm a big kind of aerospace manufacturer, I'm probably not going to manufacture all the parts that I make or assemble. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah integrate suppliers, supply chains, what level of information do I have to give them? What level do yep. of training do I need? And, and so it filters down, not just between person to machine or person and part, but it's company and company and um, suppliers and, and all Absolutely, that. yeah. And I think, I think we're starting to see that now, right? As sort of the, uh, the past seven, eight, nine years, the big, the big companies have been, in, you know, have the resources and, and people to invest in and understand, okay, well, what does added to mean for me, for my parts, for my, my company, my industry, but now they still want to then rely on the supply chain to, you know, as you said, make manufacture and deliver those parts. And so how do they transfer their knowledge, uh, their, you know, uh, design allowables, these sorts of things, best practices with, a tier one supplier or a tier two supplier or a service bureau or something like that. And it was seeing some discussion on email today around just, you know, service bureaus that are trying to make parts for this company versus that company versus that standards are all over the place and or companies are creating their own standards. And therefore they've got to be, you know, a service bureau has got to be a ninja in a sense of, okay, this company wants this, but it's tweaked a little this way. And this company also wants that, but you know, this is different. And so, so it makes it challenging for them as well, which of course, you know, drives prices up, which then makes it even more difficult to, to make the business case. Right. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot uh, as part of that. So. Okay. So as we kind of talk about supply chain, what do you think companies have to do to kind of better solve for that problem going forward and communicating kind of their design intent, their parts to the broader manufacturing supply base. Yeah. So I, I think we're really, we're at a, at a critical stage here in terms of how do we, how do we deploy and utilize the supply chain for additive manufacturing? Right. And so, so I think one of the big things that we we're not talking enough about, you know, but you've been seeing and working in this is sort of the whole, uh, the whole data management and exchange side of it. And so, uh, your trace software, for instance, uh, how does that how does that facilitate integration across uh, uh, disparate companies within the supply chain, uh, you know, and pull those together so that you are, uh, as you said correctly, your you know the the design intent, the design requirements, uh, the assurances that are going on at you know within the supply chain, right? From who's making the part to then who's assembling the parts. So then what shows up on, you know, your doorstep or, or their doorstep. So um, I don't think there's, we've been folks so focused, rightly so on 
on sort of the, the, the part, the microstructure, the performance, you know, quality assurance, you know, in situ monitoring, but we haven't stepped back and look at what does that mean? You know, how are we exchanging data uh, effectively across all of these organizations within the supply chain, not within, you know, my one particular company. And so I think we really need to, to broaden that discussion and be realistic about what's, what's needed and the gaps that still occur on, on that front. For sure. And, and you talked about data and how much learning you could probably do even just by knowing kind of how are these two machines tracking? How is this site and this site tracking with sensors or productivity, materials usage, things that like they may not be the sexiest metrics that you can use, but I think you can gain a lot of insight <laughs> in terms of cost and how much does this scale and, and what do I have to do to improve it? So. Exactly. And so I think you need, I think, you know, some of the things you've developed in terms of this, you know, having dashboards that bring all of this information, these metrics sort of together in one coherent place. I think that's been, we, we have that for other types of manufacturing technology, right? And we're used to doing that and they integrate with, with SAP and our ERP systems and these sorts of things, but additive is still lagging in that regard. And so, you know, I applaud you for the efforts you're doing to uh, you know, engage companies in those discussions, figure out what's needed and really try and drive that forward because to really productionize or really industrialize it, it it's got to pervade the whole supply chain. And we need, you know, we need the design tools, we need the manufacturing knowledge, and we need the, the data tools uh, as well for handling all of this. So we're at the beginning of 2021. So if, if you were to be <laughs> king of the additive manufacturing industry for a day, what's one problem that you'd want to kind of solve in, in this Ooh. year? Good question. Good question. Um, well, I think, you know, the usual, the, the, the big three that, that always sort of pop up and depending on the, the company and, you know, who you're talking to, you know, still, you know, standards, you know, remains an issue. Uh, the cost is an issue. And then I think the other, the other big one is this, you know, the, the reliance of design allowables, right? And or material properties and, and the, the information that we're used to having um, uh, that uh, I look up in, you know, Mill Handbook 5, this, you know, that and the other. And I, that, that, you know, those, are, those discussions are going on, they're evolving. Um, you know, I guess I'm a biased a little bit as sort of, you know, comes back to the design and how do, uh, how do we, how do we use design to, um, to really help up or speed the adoption or, or the industrialization of additive, right? I think we're, I think we're at the point I'm, I'm excited to see, or hopeful to see that we are, uh, as you said, productionizing and or really industrializing. I think we've been, a lot of companies have been dabbling it with, with it for a while. Uh, you're starting to see um, inroads here and there and some success stories. So, so I hope we can sort of shift into another gear in terms of really, uh, you know, really doing a, a good job to industrialize and, you know, uh, expand adoption of this technology. I think that's, that's what I'm probably most hopeful hopeful for and or about in uh, this coming year, so. Awesome. And one of the other things you're working on or helping kind of put together is this Additive Around the World kind of seminar series. Do you want to talk yes. a little more about that? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, 
I uh, said earlier there, I'm, I was supposed to be on sabbatical this year. Uh, one of the nice things about academia is every seven years we can apply and uh, sort of go learn something new or do something new. So I had applied to go and travel the world and see where additive was really at in, you know, companies and universities in, in Europe and in Asia, Singapore, uh, New Zealand, Australia. Actually, I wish I wish I had made it to New Zealand and Australia uh, a while ago, right? But um, but uh, so since I, I couldn't travel, then um, as part of our graduate program, we've launched a uh, seminar series. Uh, and so this spring, we're, we're uh, calling it Additive Around the World. And so everybody that I was hoping to go visit, I instead have invited them to speak and you know, virtually share what they're doing. And, you know, fingers crossed, maybe uh, the world pandemic abates and vaccine works and everything. Hopefully I'll get to, you know, reciprocate and go travel and see them, uh, you know, six months or a year from now or whatever time it is. So, so yeah, it's been fun pulling that together. We had, uh, we kicked off this morning, Paolo Colombo from uh, University of Padova talking about in Italy, uh, AM Ceramics uh, and sort of what he's seeing and been doing. And then, um, Next up next week, actually, Mark Kirby, uh, who was at um, Renishaw and is now part of University of, of Waterloo as their uh, additive uh, expert, getting their lab up and running and, and doing some research projects there. So hopping around a uh, different country each week and um, seeing where in the world's additive. So, yeah, I guess it, it, given given the state of the world, that's maybe the best and safest thing we could do these days. So uh, hopefully everybody will enjoy it. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tim. It was great catching up and hopefully we'll see you in person soon. Yeah, I hope so. Appreciate it. Thanks again for the opportunity, Mike, and uh, good luck with everything yourself. Thanks.